So we are in Judges chapter 1, continuing there. We're still in the prologue. This is the first prologue of Judges, if you recall. And last week we began to delve into this prologue. We discussed the death of Joshua and the mission that the Israelites were to continue completing the task of the conquest of Canaan. The Israelites, they proceeded in an appropriate manner in this task. They asked God, what is the next step that we should take? As we see in verse 1, their question posed to the Almighty is, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Notice that they know what they're supposed to do. They're just asking for the order of battle, so to speak. And we discussed, you know, shortly, how, how did they ask this question? Well, we, we don't know. And we see that in the Old Testament, the high priests generally use Urim and the Thummim to ask these questions. But we think that that was only probably to obtain a yes or no answer. We have no idea otherwise how those stones could have been used other than as casting of lots for a yes or no. But notice the question. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a complicated question, and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, withstand just a yes or no answer. So God gave them a detailed answer. And we see in the formation of this question that Israel, I, excuse me, Israel is united at this time, at least conceptually in their planning to continue the conquest. So in other words, the glue of Joshua's leadership, the great leader who has recently died, that glue is still holding Israel together. The 12 tribes are ready to move forward as a combined army. However, they no longer have Joshua. They need a general to organize the plan of battle for them. And for them to go up every tribe on its own with every man as an individual warrior doing as he thinks best is not the way to wage this war. And it appears that Israel realizes this, that a leaderless mob of individual warriors against well-armed enemies in fortified cities, cities that control the communication routes and the trade routes, would end in slaughter for Israel. For leadership, for this generalship that they needed, they turned to God as their divine warrior. And from this, I want us to see our first point that I want to cover tonight, that our direction is to be from the Lord. Just as we see here that God provided his revealed word to the Israelites, he has also provided his revealed word word to us, that is our Bibles. And often we find God's direction taken from Scripture, it may not be specific, but it is certainly sufficient. It may not give us all the exact details that we may want, but it gives us what we need. Just as in this case, the 12 tribes were given what they needed, the direction Judah shall go up. 
So Yahweh instructs who? It's Judah. And he instructs what? They are to go up. But think about this, this direction, the, the innumerable steps that would be involved in Judah carrying this out for Judah to go up. But they're not spelled out in minute detail by God, are they? We don't see that. But here, you know, God provides Israel with more than a yes or no. And it's the type of detailed description from God that we often see from a prophet who has received a word from God. We don't know if that's the case here, but that's what it's remindful of. And so the names that we come across here of the sons of Jacob, they're used to symbolize the entire tribes that descended from them. So as we read the account, it sounds as though it's speaking of the individual sons of Jacob. But in actuality, they just stand uh, as representative of the tribes that have descended from them. These men are long dead. So Judah, being chosen by God to go first, is in accordance with the patriarchal blessing that was bestowed by Jacob on his son Judah. We read this in Genesis 49.8, where Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So this prophetic blessing by Jacob on Judah, it foretells the preeminence that Judah's descendants will have in Israel. And this preeminence of Judah is evident in the Lord's command given to the combined tribes that we've just heard. And for all intents and purposes, the battle is already over before it's begun. God has predetermined to give the land that Judah is to fight for, to give that land into their hand. The divine decision has been made, and the outcome is thus certain. Furthermore, given the symbolic nature of what Judah is about to do, the land in question is best taken here as the whole land of Canaan, as promised to Israel. I believe that's probably the best way to view it at this point. So the effect of this brief exchange, and particularly the promise of victory at the end of the the verse where God says I have given the land into his hand might suggest that the struggle for the full possession of the land of Canaan is about to enter its last phase and will soon be brought to a successful conclusion but remember as as we talked about what the book of Judges is, a, is about contextually and how it progresses. That um, chapter one is very optimistic and it shows successes, some of them under Joshua, some after Joshua, but it's optimistic in nature. It's a prologue. It's giving us a, a contextual background of what's to come. So we ought not to set our hopes too high on the success of the 12 tribes as they go about completing the conquest. 
That the tribe of Judah is designated as first would have surprised no one familiar with Israel's past, nor will it surprise anyone now who has read up to this point in Israel's story from its patriarchal beginnings. In Jacob's blessings of his sons in Genesis 49, Judah is singled out for leadership in the most emphatic terms. In Genesis 49.10, this is what we read. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So rather strangely, since this pronouncement from Jacob, how many great leaders have we seen arise from this tribe of preeminence, from the tribe of Judah? None. Neither Joseph, Moses, nor Joshua are from this tribe, this tribe that has been blessed to lead Israel. So I think what we're seeing here is considering, when we consider um, Jacob giving this blessing and the time that passes until Judah now enters into the beginning of this preeminent role, what we see is an example of what often is referred to as the prophetic mountaintop, where a prophet of God is given a vision. And that prophet it is like he is on a mountaintop. And God has told him about these other mountaintops that are ahead. And that prophet sees the mountaintops in God's vision. But there is no way to gauge the distance between mountaintops. There's no way to tell the depth of the valleys in between. And when we read read prophecy, we really should keep this in mind. If we attempt to establish prophetic timelines, this is is an area we cannot measure. So date setting and saying that um, there's so much time between this event and the next event in the future... Uh, is, is dangerous and ill-advised for us to do. Um, of course, we can look back uh, at events that have occurred in biblical history and read about you know, the timelines, and, and we can see, often in hindsight, very clearly the distance between these mountaintops. But we need to understand the, the issue that is um, besetting to the people who are living at the time, living through these prophetic things. But it appears now that it is the time that God has decreed that Judah is to step forward in the beginning of the book of Judges. They are to step forward and to lead. However, you know, Judah's full glory is, is not yet ready to come into full bloom. It's, it won't come into its, its vast, much vaster uh, glory until David takes the throne of the United Kingdom, the United Monarchy under the Davidic reign. And it's under this Davidic monarchy 
David's son Solomon, he establishes the, the complete and full boundaries of Israel as God has prophesied will, will be theirs. The land that will belong to them is fulfilled at that time. So the tribe of Judah is very important in that. But we see that Israel loses that land. They were filled, they filled to the border that God had given them, and then due to apostasy and disobedience, these blessings of land were lost to them. And even then, under the united monarchy, at its peak, it was just a taste, just a glimmer, just a sparkle of the magnificence that was to come when the true king would mount the Davidic throne. And not only would the blessing of land be for these borders in the ancient Near East, but it would be the whole cosmos. It would be the entire world. It would be everything that is a material existence. That's our King Jesus, who, as we know, comes from the tribe of Judah. That is the magnificent future that is being spoke of in the prophecies of this tribe. Now you see how there's a fulfillment in prophecy where there's a nearer fulfillment and there's a farther fulfillment. And I, and I suggest to you that we often can find things of that nature in biblical prophecy where there's a foreshadowing that's, that, that matches what's been prophesied, but there may be something bigger that is coming in God's timeline. And that, my brethren, could apply to us. There are things that God has prophesied that have been partially fulfilled, but not fully fulfilled. We live at a time when the kingdom is in the process of being fully fulfilled. And it is our task, our blessing that's been given to us to assist in moving the kingdom uh, forward. So what began in Judea over 2,000 years ago will be completed upon Christ's return. That is certain. Then all of creation, all of creation will realize the full import of Jacob's foretelling of the scepter and the ruler's staff. And all obedience and all tribute will come to Christ the King. But this period of judges that we're in will see the beginning. Judah is destined to rule. Not just their own tribal allotment, but the whole promised land of Canaan. This has been given by divine decree. The pronouncement by the Lord in verse 2 is pregnant with import. A lot is going to unfold from it. And what follows immediately from it will only be the first stage. To summarize... The way the book of Judges opens is full of optimism and promise. But sadly, as we will see, the expectation it creates is not realized until well after the time of the Judges are over. A dark shadow falls in between. 
And I think we can learn from this. At times when we think that a dark shadow has fallen over us, and perhaps it'll be a difficult time ahead. The Lord is the only one who really knows. But as we go through Judges and we see how bad things got, we need to remember how good things became. And if we go through a similar dark time, we must focus on the fact that things will become not only good, but very good. And God has decreed that we are here at this time, at this point in history, for a purpose. So I want to turn your attention now to um, verse 3 of chapter 1. And in it, we see an alliance of the two tribes of Judah and Simeon. We read, And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. This brings us to our second main point, which is we must actively respond to the directions, to the commands of God. It requires action on our part. Notice Judah does not sit idly by and wait for Yahweh to supernaturally bring all the events to conclusion. Judah heard the Lord's direction. Judah heard the prophecy that the land would be given into his hand. Yet Judah knew that he must go forward. That is what the Lord directed. There was no argument about, well, do we really need to go for it? Because God said it's going to be ours, um, and we just need to claim that promise. We claim that promise, and we'll just wait. And somehow, it'll all come to pass. We just have to be patient. No, Judah steps into action and does exactly what God directs them to do. They do not wait for step-by-step instructions from God. God does not need to say, okay, Judah, pull your boots on. Lace them up. Lace them up tight. No, because the Israelites, they know how to prepare for war. They know how to fight battles. It makes me think about our age that we live in. We live in an age of lawyers and litigation. And many people are conditioned against the decisive action when it is called for because of what lawyers basically have done to our society. Now, I'm all for lawyers. I've worked with lawyers um, over my, my first career for 30-plus years, and there was even some of them that I really liked. Um, there's, a, there's a role for them, and, and they're needed. So I'm not... I'm not casting aspersions on lawyers as a class. But if you think about what has happened in our society, and what I would see are these lawyer tricks in the, in the many lawsuits I was involved in during my police career, not primarily always against me, but in the positions I held, I was often involved in defending the city, preparing a defense, you know, responding to uh, interrogatories and 
depositions and things of that nature, and writing policies to deal with uh, the aftermath of uh, um, legal decisions. But one of the things that lawyers like to do is they like to ask questions of details to the nth degree as far as like what was in our policy manuals. Um, and the, the, uh, that semi-humorous illustration I gave you about pulling on your boots and lacing it up, well, one of the city's attorneys, he actually used that as a rebuttal to what the, the lawyers suing the city were asking. It was like, we do not need to specify in our policy manuals nor in our rules and regulations how officers are to tie their boots. The officers know how to tie their boots. That's assumed. And if they cannot tie their boots, they are not going to make it through the police academy. We don't need to cover things like that. It's, it's the same sort of thing. So we, you know, um, we, we get focused into drilling down into these, these really you know, ridiculously um, specific details. And where this plays out, <clears throat> and where it could play out, and I wanna, I'm going to connect this to our Christian life, but where I saw it play out in the field when I, w I was a sergeant, I was in a riot. I was in a very large riot, and it was very, very dangerous. There was a lot of violence going on. And in fact, at the time, we were kind of um, uh, in one area with a huge crowd in front of us. We were backed against buildings, and we had reports of people to our west being murdered. We heard gunshots. And it turned out there were two people that were murdered to the west of us. Then we had reports to the east of us. There was a crowd gathered in a park and a stabbing had occurred and someone had been stabbed. We had an additional murder there. We needed to do something. We had additional resources coming in. We had SWAT teams were being helicoptered into us. Our commander at the time froze because he was getting so much, so many signals coming into him. And there's so much worry at the time, if you remember the 90s and everything that went on with Rodney King and things of that nature, there was so much concern about doing the wrong thing that we failed to do the minimum right thing. I'd ask the commander, let me take my squad, let me go, into, let me go off in this area, and rescue these people if he couldn't make a decision. Then I had another sergeant with a squad off to the, to the east of us that was yelling for help, that they had, they had surrounded, the officers had surrounded this person who ended up dying in the park to protect them from the assailants. And the officers were calling for help. And I asked the commander, I said, let me take my squad and go that way. And he kept saying, we've got to wait, we've got to wait, we've got to wait. Well... We knew what was right. We knew what we had to do. This commander knew that, and he was a very good man. But the events were such, and we were in such a time, that he froze. We couldn't get to any of these people in time. We got to those officers and, and helped them that were surrounding the, the stabbing victim. But this is where the worry over being second-guessed, this is what it does. 
And the church today is being second-guessed. It's being criticized. We're always going to get criticism from the outside. But there's much dissension inside the church. There's nothing we can do about that external to our body. We must be united here at Sovereign Grace and thank the Lord we are. But we can expect that we may face criticism and dissension from without, but within the body of Christ. But our task is to complete our mission, to do what we know we must do, what we have been tasked to do. Like that day in that riot, our task was to protect life. We didn't do that. It was a sad day. Our task in the church is to go forth and make disciples. Our task is to preach the word of God. Our task is to baptize. Our task is to represent Christ every place we go. There are many people even within the church, whether they're true believers or false professors, is not always known to us, but there are people within the church that will try to restrict us from doing that. We have seen that in our recent history, have we not? We have seen our brethren elsewhere who are fearful to meet. We have seen brethren elsewhere who have been put upon by the authorities for carrying out their God-charged mission. We must not succumb to that. So this demand that we have today, demand for absolute perfection and incessant criticism leads to inability to act where we freeze and we can't make decisions because we're going to be second-guessed. Someone is not going to like what we do. Brothers and sisters, we're Christians. There's going to be a lot of people that do not like what we do every single day that we live. But our Lord blesses our life and he orders us to go forward because he has given the land into our hand. And it is our job to go up. Our life of faith is a life of action. Our trust and faith in God is to permeate everything We do. It's not just on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is such a blessing to to gather with with Christ's beloved and, and to be in unity, to be in fellowship is wonderful. This is one day out of the week. We need to realize that every day for us, we give unto the Lord. And we must know God will guide us in the direction that we are to go. Just he did with Judah. As I said, go up. How do we know what to do, though, when we go up? Well, that's where Christian maturity comes into this. It's gained through assembling together. And I know, to use that old phrase, I'm preaching to the choir. When I I look at my brothers and sisters here, I see you, beloved, every Sunday. I see you in the morning, I see you in the mid-morning, I see you in the evening, I see many of you on Wednesday nights 
that are able to make it here on Wednesday nights. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but there are some, maybe, live stream or on sermon audio in the future that need to hear this. So bear with me. And when I, re- when I say these things, I'm not at all ever implying that you are falling short, but know that when you are fulfilling these things that we exhort you to do from the pulpit, that we are giving you encouragement, that this is encouragement from the pulpit. You could say, yes, preacher, yes, pastor, I am doing that. Amen and God bless, you are doing that. But it does our hearts good to hear that we are in accordance with what God wants us to do. Our Christian assembly, our assembling together, I'm talking about maturity. Our maturity comes from hearing God's word. You've heard that today, three different times. That's wonderful. That is such a blessing. And studying God's word together and individually. I know the vast majority of you read your Bibles every single day. And and you'll be blessed for that. And that's the proper thing to do. And some of you gather with other people and study God's word. and, and, And apply it to your daily lives consistently. This is the training that we need that provides the details for our action. So all of you are heavily involved in training. Now back to what's going on in the book of Judges. The focus shifts from the land as a whole to a particular parts of it that have been assigned to the various tribes. Judah shifts from acting symbolically for all Israel to acting for Judah campaigning to secure possession of its own land allotment. This is proper. This is not Judah being selfish. This is exactly what the Lord God wants Judah to do, as he's going to want each of the tribes to do. So the tribal land allotments are laid out in detail in the book of Joshua. And in recognition of Joshua's import, excuse me, Judah's importance, its allotment in Canaan is mentioned first in the book of Joshua. An entire chapter is devoted to it, Joshua chapter 15. And according to the details there in Joshua, it covered the entire southern part of Canaan, from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean coast, and from Jerusalem to the southern desert. Another thing we see in verse 3 that's worth pointing out, there's an emphasis on the fraternal bonds between the two tribes, between Judah and Simeon. In the patriarchal history of Jacob, renamed Israel in Genesis chapter 29, it reveals to us that Judah and Simeon are full brothers. Leah, the unlifed, excuse me, the the unloved first wife of Jacob, gave birth to both boys. So you know from reading Genesis that not all of the sons of Jacob were full brothers. Some of them were only half-brothers. There was different women involved in giving birth to these 12 boys. And Judah and Simeon's bonds are further strengthened in their tribal land allotments. When we look in the book of Joshua, we, we, we find that Simeon's allotted land 
was inside the land given to Judah. Simeon was surrounded by his brother Judah's land allotment. And we can see that there's kind of a, not that that Simeon disappears, but Simeon almost becomes like one with the tribe of Judah as God's story goes on. So it's important to understand at this point and why I'm kind of getting into that, um, although it's interesting, but it would be like, is this just trivia? No, it's important because kinship ties are very important at this time in Israel's um, history. They're stronger in the minds of some of the Israelites than their ties to Israel as a whole. We're going to see this play out in Judges. One thing that leads to this is what we see that strengthen the bonds between Judah and Simeon is the practice of multiple wives and the taking of concubines. That practice led to much tension, much jealousy, much greed, not just between the wives and the concubines, but with the offspring, over inheritance, who's getting dad's stuff? we'll see that it leads to two extreme reactions. Being the son of another woman, which the judge Jephthah, that's how he is described by his family, it can lead to expulsion from the clan. He gets you kicked out, especially if your mom is kind of like got a shady past, as his mother did, apparently. It could lead to disinheritance. Of course, when we're talking about money, when we're talking about wealth, and many of us have experienced this when there's a death in the family and we have wills to deal with and that sort of thing, or we've at least heard stories, or if you've watched, you know, 48 Hours or 2020, you'll see this sort of stuff. This leads to deep and lingering resentment and even to murder. We'll see in the book of Judges it leads to fratricide fratricide, brother murdering brother. So as Judah goes up, we have the battle of Jerusalem take place. I draw your attention to verses 4 through 8. Let's look at those. And we read, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and this is important, and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. So Judah's initial charge in the renewed war of conquest is against maybe two different people. Maybe one. And why do I say two or one? 
Well, the Canaanites, we're told about the Canaanites. So as I've said, this is, a, this is kind of an umbrella term which functions for the population of Canaan as a whole. And specifically, there's some comment who, who, who believe, and I think this is very intriguing, that it may serve to distinguish people living in walled cities because we're told the Canaanites have fortified cities, right? So they're walled, walled cities. In other words, to use our vernacular, they're city dwellers. They're city slickers. And then we got the Periazites. Now, this is a tribe in, inhabiting Canaan, a portion of it. And their name comes from a root meaning to be isolated or separated. So it's believed that these people lived in unwalled villages. They lived probably in the hill country near Jerusalem. So they're like rural inhabitants. So we've got the city slickers and we've got the country bumpkins. So Judah is fighting against both. Well, there's another take on this, which you know, I think both of them are intriguing and it really um, it, it could function either way. Um, it suggested that this may refer to one specific tribe, basically, uh, let's say the Canaanite hyphen Periazites. This is similar to hyphenated Americans that, that we have today. There are Periazites who live in the land of Canaan. They're considered Canaanites. Just like, you know, name any national, ethnic, or um, certain groups in the in the US that are you know Italian slash Americans, Irish slash Americans. It could be that sort of thing. Um, we don't know. But this action, this battle against them first takes place at Bezik. The exact location of Bezik, we don't know. There's a couple suggestions, um, one of which I think can be discounted because it is outside of Canaan on the other side of the Jordan River. And it's but there is a place called Bezik there that's referred to in an, uh, another portion of the Old Testament. Um, but we can, but from the, 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 this text that we're reading right now, we can assume safely that Bezik is somewhere near uh, Jerusalem. And the name of the commander of the enemy forces, Adonai Bezik, that means literally the Lord of Bezik, probably not his given name, probably a title, or perhaps how the Israelites referred to him. Um, but based on the large number of troops that are under his command, 10,000, he may have been charged with defending Jerusalem itself and not just his little town of Bezik. He may have had a, uh, a multinational force, if you will, combined army under his command of, of warriors from different places that needed to defend uh, Jerusalem. So he's leading troops maybe from a relatively wide area rather than just Bezik itself. Now, I want to mention very quickly that often we can run into problems with large numbers in the Old Testament. And there's, there's a, a lot of discussion amongst commentators and theologians as to whether numbers in the Old Testament should be taken at face value for what they are, because sometimes they're incredibly large. Like this number, 10,000, that's a, that's a really huge army uh, for this area, for this time. Well, <clears throat> I think it's accurate, but maybe it doesn't mean 10,000 individual soldiers, because the word that, um, that 
what we use, that we get our English gloss of a thousand from, is the Hebrew word elip. And elip is a term that signifies a military unit, similar to like a clan of unknown size. We don't know how big elips were, but we've been, they've been assigned the number of a thousand. It could be less than that. So when we read this in Hebrew, it's a salat alephem, which is 10, number 10, followed by this word elip in the plural, meaning a thousand. So 10 of these units, maybe 10,000. But maybe not. But if you hear that, if, if someone ever uses that argument with you, well, I can't believe the Old Testament because of these numbers. Well, if you remember this little piece of information, it shows that if there is a problem, it's a problem with our translation. It's a problem with our knowledge of what the ancient Hebrew is saying. It's not a problem with what God inspired to be written. Certainly, the original author and the original readers knew exactly what size this unit was. So in the course of this battle, Judah and Simeon find Adonai Bezek at Bezek. And it's here that the first engagement of the battle occurs. And his forces are decisively defeated. And what does he do? He flees. He's pursued and captured, and they punish him. His punishment, as we read in verse 6, is to have his thumbs and his big toes cut off. Now Judah and Simeon inflict mutilation, torture, on this conquered king. But why? Why would they do this to him? Well, there is a reason besides brutality or retribution. There's a military reason and there's a religious reason. Militarily, a warrior at this time, which we would call first-generation warfare, which is smash-and-bash warfare, that warrior needs his thumbs to wield a sword, to wield a bow, to wield a spear. spear. And he needs his big toes because agile footing is necessary in, in close-quarter combat that he's engaging in. So basically, they've rendered this warrior king hors de combat. He's out of action. He can no longer function as a warrior. That means he cannot lead troops in battle ever again. Now, religiously, if we think back to Exodus and Leviticus, then there also there's texts um, from Ugarit, which are the ancient Near East city north of Israel that has helped us and when we've discovered their texts about 100 years ago, it's helped us immensely to understand biblical Hebrew, the language, and the customs. Um, so, Because there was a lot that was found there. But blood from sacrifices in both um, the Old Testament and in the Ugaritic texts was placed on the thumbs and big toes, as well as the ears, but he didn't lose his ears, his, but was placed on the thumbs and big toes of priests as an anointing. The Levitical priests had this done to them. The Aaronic priesthood had this done to them. And insofar as Canaanite priests doubled, excuse me, kings doubled as priests, Adonai Bezek is here desecrated 
and removed from his priestly position. So Adana Bezik is unable to fulfill the definitive roles of an ancient pagan king. He cannot be a warrior chieftain anymore, nor can he be a pagan priest. These roles have been taken from him. Now what's odd is that Adane Bezik seems to wax philosophical over this whole thing. The statement he makes, he admits that he's inflicted the same punishment on 70 kings. That's an awful lot of kings that he has conquered. And I think what it tells us is that he probably commanded or ruled an area much larger than just the unwalled village of Bezik. And these 70 kings who he mutilated were reduced to groveling for scraps under his table. In other words, he reduced them to crippled dogs. And he says, as I have done, so God has repaid me. This pagan king recognizes divine justice. What he speaks of here that I did this to those kings and now it's being done to me, God's doing this to me. He's talking about the principle of lex talionis or the law of retribution. We know this from the Old Testament. This is is the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And this, this ancient law to us seems barbaric but it brought the beginnings of a modicum of justice to the ancient Near East. Because up to this point, if you knocked out my brother's tooth, I might kill you. And if I killed you, then your brother's going to kill me. And then my family is going to attack your family. And then your clan's going to attack my clan. And we get blood feuds. So... The law of retribution was whatever you do unto someone, it will be done unto you. Now, of course, our Lord and Savior, Christ, when he's speaking from the mountain in the Beatitudes, he puts that law aside, doesn't he? You've heard it said, there'll be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, so what our Lord said is that personal retribution, personal vengeance is not to be part of the Christian life. It is not part of the biblical ethics anymore. It had its time and its place. And then God established government, good government, which is supposed to wield the sword to make the evildoer afraid. Supposed to. We can all remember when that actually happened in our day and age. And and it does to some extent. We've just, we're just seeing a lot of horrible examples of it not happening anymore. But what's, I think, interesting is that this law of retribution based on identity is what our society has returned to. It is the identity of the victims that matters foremost in our society, in many aspects of our society, and in our criminal justice system. We're going backwards as far as that is concerned. But this act, this mutilation torture that was carried out on this pagan king was neither commanded nor commended by the Lord God. 
Judah and Simeon do to the Canaanite king what the Canaanite king has done to others. Even though they allow the Lord of Bezek to live and take him to Jerusalem, which is in violation of God's command to them. They're operating under harim, which is they are to be devoted to destruction. This is a very important concept. We're going to get into it later as we go through the book of Judges. But this is applies now. And in the harim that God gives them, you shall devote them to justice. We read it in Deuteronomy. The Perizzites are mentioned specifically. And this is a king who is leading the Perizzites into battle. And they let him live. He's taken to Jerusalem. The text seems to be ambiguous as to who takes him there. They took him to Jerusalem and there he died. I don't think he was recaptured by his forces. I think that as we see the battle goes on to Jerusalem, that Judah takes him to Jerusalem and he dies there by what means we do not know, if they finish him off or whether he dies of infection or blood loss or shock. We don't know. We're not told. That's not what is important. What is important here, and I want you to see, this is the beginning of the paganization of Israel. And it's happening very, very early in the conquest. Israel is now in Canaan. But disturbingly, Canaan is now in Israel. In defeating their pagan enemy, Judah and Simeon have taken up pagan practices. So really, who defeated who? Adonai Bezik lost his toes, his thumbs, and eventually his life. But Judah and Simeon, effectively, by their actions, they took on the role of Adonai Bezik. They became like this pagan king. They operated outside of the law of God and the commands of God. Verse 8 in Judges 1. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Very terse, very to the point description of a fierce and bloody battle. In spite of this straight formal account, other references to the Israelite conquest of the important city of Jerusalem cloud the issue. In both Joshua 15 and later in Judges, um, it suggests that first Judah and then Benjamin have been unable to dislodge the Jebusites. These are the pagan pagan tribe that occupied Jerusalem. And apparently, at some point between these two attempts, Judah attacks and takes the city, which is what we read about here in verse 8. So how do we reconcile this? We've got an earlier attempt, doesn't work, and later we're told that they're still there, doesn't work. And then in the middle, we've got this where it says, oh, they took the city. There's two possible solutions. And I think it's important because we need to understand that God's word is accurate here. And it's not contradictory. There's not a oops in the Bible. There's two ways that it can be explained. 
First, after an initial failure in Joshua 15, Judah launches a later and more successful campaign, this one sentence we read about. Then after Judah moves on without actually occupying the city, Benjamin attempts unsuccessfully to remove the Jebusite population remaining there, which we'll read about in verse 21 of the first chapter. And that task was only completed much later during David's reign. We'll read it. That's in 2 Samuel when David completes it, and he takes the city completely. Now, we can understand this as happening because we've seen it with our own military and things they've done in the Near East, in the Far East, or yes, the Near East, where we've taken places and then we've left and then we've lost the place, we had to go back in, someone comes in, yada, yada, yada. You know, this is part of military blunders. The second explanation as some suggest that Jerusalem encompassed both the fortified eastern city as well as the unfortified western hill. In this case, Judah successfully destroys this western hill, which is unfortified. And no one prior to David was able to capture the fortified portion of the city, which was referred to as the city of David, the old section, what's now called the old section of the city of Jerusalem. So you see how um, we can explain how this apparent contradiction is not, in fact, a contradiction. There's just more going on than maybe we see. This leads me to my third and final point. Living a faithful Christian life is to engage in spiritual warfare on a daily basis. Our spiritual warfare is directed by God's word as revealed to us, just as ancient Israel's was, both tactically and strategically. God tells us what our weapons are and how we are to use them. God tells us what our objectives are and how to achieve them. We are not to do as Judah and Simeon did and take on the characteristics of our adversary. Neither his weapons, his tactics, nor his strategy are we to assume. The schemes of the world, the flesh, and the devil are not to be our schemes. And we must never, never think that the ends justify the means. The Lord has promised us that vengeance will be his and he will repay his enemies. We're told this in many places in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. And in point of fact, God does not need us to fight for him. He does not need us to defend him, but he has chosen us, his church, to accomplish his decree. In Romans 16.20, something was revealed to Paul, and he refers back to Genesis 3.15. And Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we're told in Genesis 3.15, or the serpent is told his head will be crushed. Paul says it's the church that will be doing it. God will use the church to crush the head of Satan. God will do it through his church. Now that is magnificent. That tells us the role we have to play. And we should not be thinking that we're just going to hide out 
until we get snatched out of this world and made safe in heaven. We have a mission to accomplish, and that is crushing the head of Satan under the feet of the church. Referred to as a body, the church, not us individually. We're not going out, we're not to go out there as lone warriors, just like Judah wasn't going to go out there without the other tribes. It wasn't going to be every man for himself in this battle. No Christian engages in spiritual warfare alone. And the modern evangelical evangelical idea that, that has arisen of me, my Bible, and God alone against the world is not biblical. It's not scriptural. It is not the way we are to operate. If you have allowed anything to remove you from the church from being united with the saints of God, realize that Satan has rendered you already combat, out of action, just like Adonai Bezek was taken out of action. And discouragement and apathy are Satan's one-two punch. So if you've been knocked out of the ring, shake it off and climb back in. We are never to retreat, never to surrender. The kingdom of God moves forward all the time. And know that the victory has already been obtained by the Lord, just like God told the Israelites when he gave direction for Judah to go up and fight. What did he say? He said, I have given the land into his hand. The outcome of the battle was assured, but the battle still needed to take place, didn't it? Judah still needed to go up. Judah just didn't say, hey, you know, put down their, their weapons and like it's over with. So we don't put down our spiritual armor. We don't put down our spiritual weapons. We have a task to complete. Jesus said, I have overcome all that causes us tribulation, causes us, the church, and individual Christians. He says he's overcome that. Jesus spoke of this overcoming evil, not as a future promise, but as a present reality. He didn't say, I will overcome. Don't worry. You can count on me. He said, I have overcome. Now that is a declarative statement if I've ever heard one. We miss that, don't we? Because there are still battles that we must fight. There's still brush fires erupting. There's still skirmishes that are occurring. But Jesus has obtained victory. And this was on the cross and in the resurrection. Nothing that Satan, the world, or our flesh can do can take away the fact that our Lord came out of the tomb and is risen. Nothing can put him back in there. That's the victory. He has defeated death just as we will experience the defeat of death in our future. That's why there's no retreat and no surrender. When victory has been obtained, why retreat? Why surrender? Why remove yourself from the battlefield when your army has won, when your general stands victorious and has planted his flag on the enemy's hill? You don't. You celebrate on the battlefield. You praise your king who has brought you to this place. Well, it's time to close now. So join me in prayer, brothers, sisters.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this message you have given us. Thank you. thank you for the victory that our Lord, your Son, has won for us. Father, we, we just, uh, we exult in it. We raise our voices to heaven and we sing to you about it. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this time that we've been able to gather to hear your word. Father, bless my brothers and sisters as they go out. Keep them safe. Bless them this week as they go about their daily routines. Father, may we always remember the promises you have given us, the loyalty that we have sworn to you, and the fact that you are ever trustworthy and faithful and loving to us. In Jesus' name we pray.